1: and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, Lee Ripma. Lee, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Great. Thank you. Nice to have you on our show. Uh, Here is a little bit about Lee. She is an asset manager for Mark Hentman's Quantum Capital. She manages a portfolio of approximately 200 multifamily units in Los Angeles, overseeing the value add for current assets, raising private capital for syndications and keeping investors informed of asset performance. Lee applies her analytical skill as a scientist to commercial real estate investing. So super awesome. Lee, before we dive into our interview, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Lee Rima, as as you already covered, and I'm a real estate investor um, here in LA. And I also invest out of state in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm the asset manager for Mark Henteman's Quantum Capital. And I became interested in real estate because I wanted a path out of a W-2 job. And I wanted to start to be able to build wealth and have the freedom for my time to be my own. So after doing research on my different options, I selected real estate And I I researched everything for about a year, and then I dove in and did my first project. So once I finished that one, I really saw the power of real estate, and I kept buying out of state, and then I got into asset management here in L.A. So working for Quantum Capital has been a great match for my skill set. I already own my own portfolio out of state, and I'm really a project manager at heart. So I was excited to be able to apply my skill set on a larger scale here in L.A. Fantastic.
1: Fantastic.
3: Perfect. Thanks for that. And so today we're going to discuss asset management in detail. So can you provide us a little bit of color on what asset management is?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So the way I think about it, there's property management and then there's asset management. So the property manager maintains the property day to day, but the the asset manager really optimizes that asset. And is the steward of that investment so the asset manager makes sure that the property is on track in terms of whatever was underwritten and in order to make the deal work for our investors so as an asset manager i'm always looking for ways to boost income and cut expenses so a property manager isn't going to look at a property and think here's some extra space to add storage, or what if we could get more parking spaces in here? We should implement rubs, or we should split out leasing on parking and do that separately. So no, they're, they're not going to do that. They're just going to maintain the property. They want to keep their lives easy since they have other properties to manage as well. So asset management to me is all about optimization and steering that asset to reach its full potential.
3: Perfect. And you kind of touched on a little bit here, but why is that having an asset manager so crucial to the success of an investment?
2: Yeah, again, to me it all come down it all comes down to optimization. So an asset manager is really going to push the margins on that asset. You have someone looking at the big picture and you have someone making adjustments as needed. So how can we up income? How can we make this property perform better? So again, property managers are just managing day to day, but they're not going to go above and beyond to look for income opportunities. So with an asset manager, you've got someone who's thinking like an investor versus thinking just like a property manager. So, to me, there's there's an alignment between property managers and asset managers, but there are some conflicts of interest as well. A property manager doesn't really want to achieve max rent. Um, if they if they under rent a unit, it makes their lives way easier, right? Because they can they'll they'll rent it really easily with way less showings and way less applications. So, pushing rent, I think, is one of the areas where that conflict does arise. And you really have to make sure you've got an asset manager pushing a property manager to achieve max rents. So I always think of it, if you want an asset to go from like good to great, that's where an asset manager comes in. So we always want to exceed investor expectations and get every dollar in value we can out of a property. So just to give you a quick example of this, um, we just bought a property in November and right away, we implemented rubs on new leases. We restriped a parking lot to add two more parking spaces, and we leased out the parking separately. So now that each spot is renting for $150 a month. So another one, we, there was a basement in one of our properties, just full of junk. And so we it was really unused space. So we cleaned it up. We added some locking doors. And now we're renting two spaces for $150 a, a month. So a property manager never would have come up with those ideas on their own, you know, and we don't really, we don't want adequate, we don't want fine, we want optimal. So we we're looking to make sure a property is achieving its highest and best.
3: Nice. That's awesome. I love that. So do you also as an asset manager have communication with the investors then?
2: Yes, absolutely.
3: Okay. So what are some of the data points that you inform investors on as it relates to asset management?
2: Yeah. So we always want to keep investors informed on on how their asset is performing. So we send out updates to investors, you know, here's what we projected in our business plan and here's how that's going. So for example, I just did our first quarterly update on a property that we closed on in November, the one I mentioned already. And I told investors, you know, how much we had increased income since getting it under contract, how many units we turned in relation to what what we'd forecasted for year 1 we've actually already exceeded our unit turn uh, rate by one unit which is great because we're only about 3 months in and i also included pictures of turn units before and after we painted some hallways so i included pictures of that just so they can see what that value add looks like and then you know that the these communications tend to be an overview and then if anyone has additional questions they can always reach out. I'll answer them. And then if I think other investors would benefit, I'll add that to our next quarterly update.
3: Okay. And so, what yeah. are the most common things that investors kind of ask for other obvi- other than obviously, you know, how's the investment doing? How are the returns coming?
2: Yeah. So great question. And, you know, it's really interesting to see the range in passive investors. Um, when fo- When folks are looking at investing, some of them have a ton of questions and some of them will invest without a single question. So, The most common question that I get asked when I'm raising capital is how much money are you putting into this deal? And we always put in significant capital, at least 15%. So our investors tend to like that. And it makes it so interests are fully aligned, right? If they lose money, we lose money. And for the record, we have not lost money. But, you know, and the the other thing that investors always want to know about is the business plan. And why it will work, which is I think that 's a really good question, so many of our investments are actually in areas with rent control, and one of the things that we do well that maybe other investors don 't is tenant buyouts so some so some people want to know like, well, why is there value still left in this building at this stage in the cycle and one of my answers is that there's often a lot of untapped income potential on a rent control property. So a lot of people are scared of rent control, and, and I totally understand that. But with rent control, the assets are actually artificially undervalued because the, the income is held down, right? So um, we, rent control actually creates a great opportunity to really be able to increase income.
3: Okay, can you talk about rent control a little bit more, um, just from a high-level um, what is it and are is it throughout the entire city or does the county kind of regulate that? How does that work?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the rent stabilization ordinance is in effect in the city of Los Angeles and then counties have different different rules. So I'll just talk about the city of Los Angeles. So basically the rule is that if you, if you have an existing tenant, you can only raise their rent 3% per year. So if you've had someone who's been living in a building since 1992, you know, and you've been raising their rent 3% per year, they might only be paying $800 a month in rent for something with a market rent of $2,000 a month. So, and you cannot, you know, their lease is over, but you can't, they can't, You can't like get them to leave. Like they don't just leave when their lease terminates. They have they have tenant rights. And so essentially they get to stay there. And if they if we want them to leave, for example, we offer them money to leave. And if it you know, it's totally voluntary for them. So it, you know, maybe they want that cash to go start a business or they want to go buy a house somewhere else, probably not in LA. And And so they take it if it makes sense for them. So so that's how rent control, that's the rules around rent control. And then there's one other little piece of rent control is that sometimes buildings are master metered for gas and electric. And if a building is master metered for gas and electric, you can raise an additional 1% per year for each utility that you pay for. So you can raise up to 5% per year sometimes if you've got the, the master meters
3: got it. And so once you do pay for that tenant to move out, and let's just say they take the money and they do move out, then you can raise the rents to what would be market rent, correct?
2: Right. Oh yeah, good point. So once a market is once a unit is vacant, you can raise it to market.
3: Okay. So that complete that's why that business plan makes sense. And are right. you allowed to kind of share like how much are you paying these tenants to move out of their properties?
2: You know, really it really depends, but I would think our average buyout is about $18,000 and 2 months free rent. Wow. So it's significant, wow. you know, significant amount of money.
3: Yeah, but I guess when you take into the cost of living here in LA, you know, obviously it it makes sense if they're going to move and have to pay $3,000 a month and that's only 6 6 months of living, right? So Right. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Wow. That's uh, quite a bit of money to, to move someone out. So what would you say the most important question for a passive investor is to ask a sponsor or an asset manager?
2: Yeah. So I think that seeing a track record and asking about past deals is really important. Um, And specifically, I think knowing how far back that sponsor's track record goes. So you want to make sure that they've been through real estate cycles. So if you're investing with someone with a limited track record, they might've only seen the market, you know, in the good times. So like right now we're we're on a tear that we've been on since 2014, right? So when the sponsor has been through events like 2008, they're always really careful with their investments because when they buy, they're always doing it with 2008 could happen again in mind. So you always want to make sure that the investment and the sponsor can survive in a downturn. And so I think that that's really important. And the other big thing I would say is that really look at their plan for value add on the property and just ask yourself, does this plan make sense? Is this plan realistic? Um, so it's, it's not rocket science, what we're, what we're doing in real estate. So if someone can explain their business plan to you in plain English, that's probably um, a problem. So the other thing to do is just look at their costs. We actually look recently looked at a deal that we would be passive investors in. And, and that's how we kind of diversify into other markets. Um, and this this deal had just these huge upfront costs. It was like $880,000, like right upon close. And so that's just a huge hurdle. You know, you're starting, you're just not starting on a on good footing there, just have this huge hurdle to overcome. So that's, just look at some of their, look at some of their numbers. You don't have to understand everything about it, but you know, you can educate yourself about what it means, what the what the different fees mean and and you know, what those costs really are and yeah, so that's what I'd say. Yeah.
3: I'm going to put you on the spot here, but, um, you talked about value add, like adding two parking spots and charging for those or finding some additional storage. Are there some other creative ways that you've seen, uh, directly being an asset manager to add value?
2: Well, yeah. One of the things that, um, I'm, we're looking at right now is in-unit laundry is very popular and you can, you can rent a unit for a lot more if you've got in-unit laundry. So, so that's one thing: storage, parking, bike storage, renting out, renting out parking spaces, um, leasing parking is is really good because leasing park. So parking would not be subject to the rent control ordinance. So you could raise the rent on parking, whatever you wanted. Whereas you can only raise the rent on a unit three percent per year. So if you tie that parking space to the unit then you're limited at 3%. But if you split it out that's a good value add. So those are some of the things that I see and then there's other things that are not directly red- related to income but they will make your building nicer which will up your income. So you know beautification of the common spaces things you know things like that making yeah, making it look nice.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I love that because you can be as creative as you want to be, right? I mean, finding two parking spaces, sometimes you're going to look at a parking lot and not even see that. But if you measure it out and you can fit them in, that's a lot of added revenue at the end of the year. So so what's the most difficult part about being an asset manager for you?
2: Yeah, I think prop- pushing property managers can be difficult at times. Um, that's where we come back to the interest not being aligned, right? So property managers they do have incentives to under rent um, because it's easier for them and they don't want to do rubs because it's more work for them and they don't want to split out the parking leases separately. Cause again, it's more work for them. And sometimes they don't really minimize repairs. Sometimes they try to maximize them because that's actually a profit center for the company. So you got to watch those costs and make sure that they don't get too out of hand and also demand transparency, just so you understand, you know, where those repairs truly needed? And so an investor wants max rent. We want careful marketing. We we want more showings, more applications to be able to push that rent. And um, so unwatched property managers could, will, I mean, I've seen it happen that they will under rent those units. So so, for I have a good example of this where uh, if, if we ever have a unit that is rent ready but it's been sitting vacant for more than like 21 days, I will go on a tour of that unit and I'll talk with the leasing agent. And I went to see a unit like this a couple of weeks ago and I asked her why hasn't this rented? And the leasing agent said it was because there wasn't any laundry on site. And this is a, a smaller property and it doesn't have a laundry room. There's really not room to add one. So I did some research and I looked I looked in the unit and I came up with a great plan to add a ventless washer dryer combo in a closet right by the bathroom. So I had a contractor take Um, a door off a closet and you know the the piping was right there because you know the plumbing was right there because it's in the bathroom right it's right next to the bathroom and so we were able to add that and install the hookups and put in this machine and then after we did it I told the property manager, okay, raise the rent hundred dollars. So, and we did it. We, we, we rented it a week later for a hundred dollars more than it had been sitting vacant on the market. So I think that's an example of an asset manager who will get creative and solve problems to, you know, re- reduce vacancy up income.
3: Well, no, that's awesome. Nice job. That's, that's fantastic. And I mean, that's, that's why you have an asset manager, right? I mean, property management is one thing. But like you said, asset manager is going to take that, that business to the next level. So yeah, that's awesome. So how often do you communicate with your investors?
2: So we communicate a lot while the deal is closing. There's a a lot of papers to be signed and money to be wired and that kind of thing. And then once we close, we send out an announcement that we've closed and then we'll update them quarterly or if there's anything exciting that we want to share. So um, yeah, and if if any investors have questions, then I'll I'll always answer their questions and add them to the next update if I think it would be of interest to the other investors.
3: Okay. And can you tell us uh, what type of investor do you tend to have or or who tends to be your investor?
2: Yeah. So our our investors tend to be other California investors who really know the LA market and like these really strong urban markets. So I think everyone right now is a little bit scared about a coming downturn and they want to make sure that they're invested in these really strong um, markets where demand for rentals won't flag. So Los Angeles is some of the most valuable real estate in the world and it, it'll really hold value. So I have no idea what's going to happen in 2019, 2020, but I think that everyone agrees that we're in the late stages of a boom cycle where real estate has really gone up a lot in value worldwide. So during any correction, you want to be in prime areas with strong population growth, strong job growth. So in in the US, LA is a, a tier market, a tier one market, along with other markets like New York, San Francisco, Seattle. So they're they're gonna have a lot lower risk during a downturn. So um so if you're investing in value add assets in these markets, you're gonna be protected during a downturn. And so I think that's who our investors are. They they like California, they know California, and then they wanna make sure they're protected during that downturn.
3: Okay, perfect. And so There's some cases where the sponsor is the asset manager, manager, but in your case, you are an asset manager for another sponsor. So how important is it for a passive investor to vet both the sponsor and the asset manager? And then kind of number two on this, how does a passive investor know who the asset manager is if it's not the sponsor?
2: Yeah, great question. So I think you should always vet the team, because no sponsor is going to be doing this alone, right? So you want to really learn about the experience of the sponsor's team, their lender, their property manager, their asset manager, their accountant, their contractors. So having a rock star team is going to be very important to the success of the investment. So you can, and you can tell a lot about a sponsor from their team, and getting to know a team's qualifications is important. So you know, we always are we'll be on the phone with our investors. They investors tend to talk to me on the phone more than they actually talk to Mark. So they get to know me through that. And um but yeah, I think it's totally fair to ask a sponsor about their team, you know, what their qualifications are and and why they'll be good stewards of that person's money.
3: Yeah, perfect. All right, Lalita's going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready?
1: Yeah. All right, Lee, here we go. What is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit on this one. I'm going to say yeah. technology and then
2: I'm going to name a couple of things. <laughs> okay? Sure. So, um you know, communication is easier than it has ever been. I'm able to text with our property managers. We can text pictures back and forth. I can text pictures with my contractor. So that's, that's awesome. And the other thing is that we, you know, Appfolio and other property management softwares, we actually have access to that. So I'm able to set up budgets in that. And I can really at a glance just see, you know, where problems in the portfolio. And then the final thing I cannot live without is DocuSign. I absolutely love DocuSign. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're closing these deals, there's so much paperwork and there's things to fill out and sign and DocuSign just makes it a total breeze. Could not live without it.
1: Perfect. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners?
2: Yeah. So I touched a little bit on how team is really important and how one of the people on your is really critical is is a great contractor. So, and value add real estate, you're always going to be doing renovations, repairs. So, my number one mistake is is hiring the wrong contractors. So, on my first deal, I was doing a complete rehab on a fourplex, and I had gotten a budget all worked out with the contractor before I even closed. So, I thought I was doing great, and I'm, I was like, oh, I'm just going to send this guy checks, and and then it's going to be awesome. He's going to get it all done. It's going to look fantastic. So. My rehab budget on that was 45000 or so I thought. So a few months into the rehab, it was, you know, the communication sort of dropped off. Things seemed to be going really slow. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to fly out to Kansas City and see what's going on with this guy. Mm -hmm. So it's July. There's a heat wave in Kansas City. It's over 100 degrees. It's 100% humidity. I show up at the job site. And I, keep in mind, at this time, I really didn't know a lot about construction. I know a lot more now. But even with my really limited skill set, I knew that this guy d- did not know what he was doing. He, the workmanship was terrible. He'd hired a bunch of guys from sort of like a halfway house for meth heads. It was, it, and these guys didn't know anything about construction. They were very angry in their faces. So um, he didn't know anything about project management. So this house was almost down to the studs. But he had installed my new granite countertops that I had paid thousands of dollars for. They were not covered. There was tools lying all over them. The sinks were backed up with yellow liquid. I later learned that when the plumbing backed up that he'd been putting paint actually down the drain. Oh my gosh. Um, So, I mean, doorways were not square. It it just had all kinds of problems. So I I called my partner from Kansas City and I was like, we have to fire this guy. And so... um, Anyway, I just remember standing in that project and thinking this will this will never be finished. Like this will never look good. Um so anyway, I ended up firing him. I found another guy who's really great and um my final cost on that rehab was $115,000. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, so luckily it it actually ended up totally fine. I had bought it bought it right, which is a key, right? Even though I made some mistakes and I have a lot of equity in that property today. But I really learned my lesson about working with, about hiring the wrong contractors.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, do you have a um, particular way of vetting these general contractors now?
2: I mean, seeing their past work is always really important, you know, talking, talking to people they've worked with and seeing the deals Mm -hmm. that they've, they've done or projects that they're working on, but always start with something small and then kind of scale up from there. Don't give someone a huge scope of work when you've never worked with them before. Mm -hmm. The other thing is like, do not be suckered by low bids or cheap prices because rarely is the cheapest person the best. And those are the people who I end up firing So I've actually, I've, I've fired more contractors besides just that first one, but, uh, yeah, I'll take someone who's like mid price and works fast, um, that I trust over the, the, over the low bid any day. So, and then, and just being really upfront and honest with them, paying them quickly when they finish jobs, that's what they always want. Um, helping them keep their pipeline full, referring them to other investors. So the contractor who I replaced that original contractor with, he still works for me today in Kansas city and I was just—I he had some tax questions. I was helping him out with and set him up with my accountant. And he'll always go do a job for me. You know, I don't need to put down a deposit because we trust each other. And so, you know, having those relationships are are just are key. Mm-hmm. And and you got to try them out. You never really know. I mean, you can check references and things, but always start with a small project just to see how it goes.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? So one of the things we're working on right now
2: is templates for unit interiors and for common areas of buildings. So the first one's been really slow to create as we work out, you know, work out what materials we're going to use, what colors we're going to use. But once we've got it down, we're going to apply it again and again. So you'll see a lot of successful investors with large portfolios do this. They'll, they'll kind of come up with that trademark template and then they'll just stamp it out. And so this will really cut my time and it'll also cut my material costs because I can buy in major bulk. And uh, so templates are going to be a great way to free up time. So the more time I can free up, the more deals I can buy, the more people I can connect with. So really templates right now are my focus.
1: Awesome. And lastly, Lee, where can people find out more about you? So Quantum Capital is our
2: website. And if anyone wants to see past deals or learn about our strategy, they can see it there. And there's a contact us form on the website and it goes to my email. So I personally reach out to anyone who contacts us. And, you know, our syndications are certainly not right for everyone, but it's always nice to just
1: talk with investors
2: and learn about their goals.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for giving us your insight and educating us, not only the importance of a asset manager, but why having one may contribute to a successful real estate investment. So with that being said, thanks so much, Lee, uh, for being on our show today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.
3: Thanks, Lee.
0: Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Passive Income through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.